Broken People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A global adventure exploring how to use your gifts and talents to make a difference. And as sometimes, and most of the time, I'm joined by my good friend, Jay Mormon. Jay, how you doing? I'm good, and I've written nothing. You've written nothing? I've never written oh, a book. Man. What yeah. are you doing with your life, Jay? Well, right now I'm buying you beer. So oh, that works. Well, you that. work a job that I, I do have you a job. afford to buy beer, and then I'll write books and drink your beer. Okay. That's that's, that's a, a friendship. That's, yeah. that's our friendship right there. So uh, tell everybody what we're drinking today. Uh, today is one of my favorite kind of go-to beers, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Ale. The Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Stout is also very good, but I thought we'd go with the, uh, the lighter version today. I think it's the the stout that I've had before, maybe. Oh, probably. You've probably. You may have had it here. It's like more more yeah. like chocolatey. Yeah. Yeah, it's thicker. Yeah, it's dark. But this has a bourbon sweetness to it that I really like. No, it's it's a I think it's a high alcohol percentage, but uh yeah, it's really good. So yeah. it'll that's why your intro was so colorful is Oh yeah. You'd had mm-hmm. a couple sips. Mm-hmm. So uh Kentucky, huh? Is that where that's that's where you hail from, huh? That's right. Yep. Bourbon is uh, in the blood down there. Yeah. So it seems still... like a sense of pride. Like everybody oh, from yeah. Kentucky. Well it's like champagne, right? It has to come bourbon has to come from Kentucky to be called bourbon and it's uh it's hugely popular and growing. So down like there. what's what would nationality be called but like with the state? Is there a state pride? I don't know. Is there a nationality but the state? Because I feel like Kentucky has that pretty strong. I don't know if Indiana has that so much. Oh, the sort of state pride thing. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I <clears throat> Kentucky does have a lot of that, I think, because of the horse parks and the Derby and bourbon and, and well, and cigarettes and alcohol in total. How can you <laughs> yeah, lose? <right. laughs> as soon as they legalize like, pot, they'll really have something to brag about. But <clears throat> all the things that are sin taxed, right? <clears throat> yes, <laughs> right. Pride of Kentucky. Yeah, like yeah, and it's a pretty conservative place, so it's kind of funny. That's yeah. true. But um, uh, no, you know, you talk to people f- that were born and raised here. A lot of people, the five hundred and downtown, yeah, the Pacers true. and the Colts. There's all kinds of yeah. love to be. I guess shared. I've only been a Hoosier for ten years, so I really. Yeah, I'm prideless when it comes to a state. Yeah, me 25 now, which is oh. crazy. Yeah, so it's time for me to move. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so uh, to make up from for all of your sins in, in Kentucky, do you what, what kind of good acts do you do? What kind of good acts do I do? <laughs> is this the way to lead me into recycling? Is that yes, what you're doing? So smooth. It was so smooth. Wow. So you're from <clears throat> Kentucky. Uh, do you, do you recycle? <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, we uh, for those listening, we do talk in the beginning about what we're going to say, and Kelsey is uh, constantly keeping me on my toes. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. I, 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 we, we put a lot of stuff in our recycling. We put um, um, less in the garbage probably than we do in the recycling week to week, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um, I bought into that wholeheartedly, and we have far less trash. Um, but um, you know, it's still a lot of recycling, right? But um, and then, you know, trying not to use plastic bags and, you know, getting paper when possible. And now we're using the reusable grocery bags. Or at least my wife does. I forget them every single time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of do that stuff to reduce your – because when you have a thing full of garbage and it just comes and it disappears, you know it's going somewhere. And Yeah. It just feels like we throw away yeah. stuff after stuff after stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I go to the grocery store, and then as soon as I walk in, I'm like, oh, man, I forgot my bags. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're not one of the – a lot of the states now are banning 
those yeah. bags. I mean, for California, for a while, at least maybe in some cities, now it might be statewide, like just no plastic shopping bags. Well, um, one of my friends was in around the, around the holiday, and um, um, his wife's from Germany, and she started talking to me about bags, not just the plastic bags leaving the grocery, but like if you're going to get grapes and you get the bag of mm. grapes – yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, you're going to buy a piece of ginger or something where you get the grocery bag and yeah. tie it up and they don't use those either. Right there. Mm. She said, yeah, I don't know why you guys use all that stuff. You just put it in your cart. We want everything so isolated and sanitary and cleaned. And, yeah. and, uh, I've started, uh, you know, if I grab, if I grab this or that, I don't put them in bags anymore. I just set them in my cart mm. and, um, trying to figure out, but then. Sometimes, you know, you forget and you use what you're used to. And yeah, um, it seems like everything comes in packaging. I don't mm -hmm. know what to do about that. Yeah, I have a friend, and, and so I, I, Dan Wasson, who was telling me the other day, so this is where this is. I'm sourcing this from him. So I, I probably should fact check it. But he said something like, uh, in terms of microplastics, like uh -huh. plastics are just like exist, you know, they've broken down some that we consume or in the manufacturing process that we consume. Yeah. That the average American consumes the amount of plastic in the credit card. Oh, like, I heard him say that. Was that, it like every every week or every yeah, month? Yeah, I remember him saying that. I tried not to pay attention. We got to check the source. Yeah. That. Considering who it was that said it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I'm, wouldn't be surprised at that. And I, I guess the process I don't understand is how somebody will tell me. Um but how all that gets into the system and where it comes from and when it breaks down, how it gets out. And it's not like all this stuff is taken to the edge of the ocean and dumped. Yeah. And then we strain it and create new things. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's just a process I don't understand. But it is obvious we have too much stuff, too many containers, too many bags. And most of it, if not 90% of it's all short term. I mean, you finish all this stuff in two yeah. or three days and it's gone. Yeah. We recycle and I feel like it's very much, and, and it's, it takes some effort for us cause I don't, we live kind of outside of the city limits. So there's no recycling there. Actually, have you been there? Uh, to your place? Yeah. 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 A couple of years ago. Okay. <laughs> Got the passport stamp <laughs> yeah. to, to get there. And, uh, so we actually have to bag up our, our mm. recycling and put it in our car and bring it into the city of Muncie. Oh, well, not so, a lot of people would do that. But we we use the um, you know we get trash picked up once a once a week and we don't need it once a week. Yeah, we can get by every other week. That's what I find. If you recycle your garbage is next. Uh, there's a lot of times I take that big blue can out to the front and it's got maybe one white Glad, you know, the big tall kitchen mm -hmm. bag in it. And that's it. Yep. Nothing else. Which I don't know that that's good though. I mean, maybe this is research we should have done. But if you're putting out that much recycling. Is the footprint in the end of that the same? Yeah. Is the net result pretty much the same? And what type of plastics versus glass? And I don't know. I, the things I read, I mean, I was reading something the other day about how we're shipping our recycling out of the country to other countries that might be able to recycle it because we don't have the capacity to do it. And they're starting to turn boats away. Yeah. They're like, we can't do it either. We don't want all your trash anymore, right? So I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to talk about it, but... Um, uh, I think maybe it's just we have too much. We yeah. consume too much stuff. Mm -hmm. For sure. We started to compost a little bit too. Uh, we have a tumbler. Oh, we, we don't do our, that. We put yeah. our food in there. Yeah. And and I think what, uh, especially with our guests today, um, what I've realized is how little thought I've put into some of this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. even with the compost, I just throw the stuff in there and it's not thrown away food and eventually ends up in our garden. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but we're throwing away less food. And I think the same thing with recycling. And I, I just, 
so our guest today, Ashley Piper, uh, her book is Give a Shit, um, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet, and has all these different ways that in our lives we we can make make better decisions that are better for the planet. And um, reading her book, she has this concept of wish cycling where you think in your head, oh, this is probably something that could be recycled. But like every recycling system or the infrastructure of it, wherever you live, could be different. Oh, and yeah. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what our local recycling center. I see the little symbol and I just I stick it I don't know there. what those mean. It used to be you had to separate those, but now I think everybody just puts them in a big bag and then they have to be sorted and looked at. And Yeah, I also don't know, like peanut butter is the best example. Mm. Of course, I'm looking at it right okay. now. But, but my wife always cleans that thing out like she's washing a dish. Yeah. And I get it pretty much there. And she's like, if it's not done, they're going to throw that away. Yeah. I don't know how that works either. So I'm wishing or hoping yeah. that something turns up from that. But I don't know yeah. if it's recycled or not. And so reading Ashley's book totally opened my eyes to so many of these things, of things that I feel like I'm doing for the for a good reason, but but I need to really do more research mm. of this act. The to, result to may it. not be what you expected. Yeah, actually, if you're trying to recycle stuff that's not recyclable – like you're probably harming the recycling system because the waste of time and effort mm-hmm. to pull out this, uh, this yeah, stuff. So, yeah. um, yeah. So our guest, Ashley today, Ashley Piper, she's a um, political strategist turned vegan an eco lifestyle expert. She's a writer and TV personality who has been featured in glamor refinery 29 department therapy readers digest. And she's pretty much appeared on every network. Uh, a lot of the morning shows they have Ashley on. She's got, the, a big personality, and I, I like she's not like shaming people. You know, I, I can tell actually. Actually, I haven't thought hardly anything about water recycling. Yeah, I just yeah. throw it in this bin and and hope it goes away to a good place, and then I'm a good person. And she would not like shame me yeah. for that. Yeah. So uh, I think our listeners today will get a lot um, of her approach to things. And but there's really so much in her book of everyday tips. It can it's somewhat overwhelming. But I think we each can pick a couple of those and start to learn more. Um, so I'm, here's our conversation with Ashley. Ashley Piper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so I just uh, finished. Uh, give uh, Is it shit or shot or shat? What is the shut? <laughs> what does the asterisk mean? Uh, the, the book title is Give a Shit. And the okay. asterisk is just there for the faint of heart who don't like swearing. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I think Give a Shat would be kind of amazing, too. But... That's the second. That's the second book. <laughs> oh, you know? yeah, so right. Give shit. more shats, give more shits, you know, something yeah. like that. <laughs> shit, shat, and the third one will be shut. That's, that's how you conjugate. Yeah, shut. Yeah. Every, every single possible ad- vowel that we can put in that place, yep. we're going to do it. So give a shit, do good, live better, save the planet. I actually love the title. I've used give Thank a shit you. before in a way that was probably uncomfortable. I talk at a lot of high schools and colleges, and I've had times, I think about the specific class where I was talking about garment workers in Bangladesh and these experiences and, and the, the tough realities that they face. And this guy in the front row was like, had his head down and was asleep. And I was just oh. like, like people need to people need to give a shit, you know. And I'm almost like pointing at this guy. So it probably wasn't my finer uh, public speaking moments, but uh, it's definitely something that at times I kind of want to walk around and 
and and slap people awake. Do you do you have that feeling sometimes? Oh yes, every day, all the every second of every day for sure. Um, and it's like managing that so that you're actually talking to folks or just interacting with folks in a way that's respectful and not super judgmental and preachy. It's it's a difficult. It's a delicate dance. It's a balance for sure. And I feel like that this book had to be a little bit of therapy and a little bit of like politely, you know, not screaming at people to, to give a shit. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of that. I mean, it was a culmination of the stuff that I know and I've been researching and practicing for a while. And then it was also, I feel like a colloquial call to arms almost or call to action. Like, you know, this isn't a joke. Um, we can make the process fun um, and enjoyable and effective, but like we all really need to be doing something now. So it's interesting, you know, I work at like a Fortune 50 company and everybody there knows that I've written the book and a lot of folks there actually have read it. And um, it's still so interesting and funny to me when I see people will be like, oh yeah, I read your book. And then they've got their styrofoam cup and I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> like slap it out sure of their hands. Like, yeah, I'm sure you encounter that in your own life with all the fantastic work you do. It's like, dude, you know me. Like, you have – no, nobody's expected to be perfect here. It's a safe space. But also, like, if I'm dating somebody and they're constantly going and getting plastic cups and stuff, I'm like, what, what the crap, man? What's yeah. going on? So it's, I think uh, I would say the story of my life these days is very much, like, learning how to – uh, manage my passion and verve for this stuff and all with like with the urgency out there of us all needing to do something pretty proactive and also with not getting super disenchanted with people yeah in the in the beginning of your book you mentioned um the kind of the political environment where you kind of i think when it started this is kind of a post-2016 election book because I, I wrote one too right like I yeah uh, my book where am I giving was very much at this place of like man what is wrong and I know a lot of people a lot of uh, creative people just couldn't create like they just like shut down uh, but I think it was very useful to have uh, the therapy of, of pouring yourself into some work like this was this kind of a post post-2016 election book Sort of. Um, so we had, we meaning my literary agent and I had like uh, pitched the book that was kind of a slightly different concept. It was really, it had a lot of environmentally friendly aspects to it, but it was focused primarily on vegan living. And we had pitched that and gone through a round of that. And it was a pretty unsuccessful, I would say lackluster, um, like, pitching situation um and I felt disenchanted by that and then a few and so I just was like I think I'm going to take a break maybe this isn't the right route for me and then uh about I took maybe four months off because you know how it is you've written a book and I'm sure you've gone through like the rigmarole of getting it to publishers and getting people's feedback on it and so it can be all-encompassing and exhausting and I was working uh the same job I have now so full-time separate career while I was doing it. So I took some time off. And in that time off, um, from like pitching the book and shopping it around, um, the election happened. And I was completely gobsmacked by the results. Um, and I think it was maybe mm, in January 
of 2017 that my agent wrote me and she said, you know what I think with a few small tweaks, this would be the right time to shop the book around again. And so we did, we were really thoughtful and intentional about wanting to really pull out the pieces around sustainable living, especially since at the time it was like Pruitt at the EPA. So there were a lot of climate change deniers there and, and we wanted to make it relevant. And we also wanted to tap into the unfortunate feelings that I think a lot of people were feeling just the general ethos of helplessness, like, holy shit, what, what can I do right now? Because if, if you're not politically aligned with who's in office right now, uh, you're, you're probably feeling pretty, um, pretty down about the future of the planet, about, you know, a variety of things, human rights and animal rights and all those things. So I, I wanted to take that and hopefully have a book that spun it into a more positive and empowering message of we actually can do things no matter who is in office. So the impetus for writing the book wasn't totally because Trump's in office, but it certainly uh, made for uh, kind of lit a fire under my ass for changing around the tone and also and also releasing it at a particular time. So we also, I wrote the book in like breakneck speed because mm -hmm. I wanted it to come out last year, um, kind of around Earth Month, a uh, little bit later than Earth Month, you know how that goes. But uh, yeah, I wanted it to come out in time to still uh, maybe turn around some of those folks who are feeling very helpless and have them see that they are in fact very powerful even during an administration like this. Yeah, I feel like it kind of gives it more of a sense of urgency. I mean, because the political climate has only gotten worse on <laughs> issues, right? right? Boy, howdy, has it, yep. And, and then the science <laughs> is also just the, has revealed itself to be that we're in a worse situation than we thought, just going back right. to, you know, last October, I feel like, especially with climate change and, um, yep. you know, it's just gotten, so we're seem like going to, we're in a worse situation than we thought we were in. And we're actually reversing much of the change that was happening, right? Um, yeah. So I actually, yeah, Ashley, this is uh, this is Jay Kelsey's uh, evil sidekick. Um, do you, <laughs> did, did you find in that process? You know, one of the things as a as a consumer of uh, all the messages and um, you know the sort of give a shit initiatives that are everywhere in the world. Do, do you do you find it interesting to try to? Because there's so many things to care about, right? Whether it's dolphins or healthcare or LGBTQ issues, um, focusing back on the sort of responsible environment, eco-friendly, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, your list of things that are important. How, what's that? What's that been like communicating to people and trying to say, look, you can care about this too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is those everyday things that people say, gosh. I just use plastic. I don't have time to do it. Yeah, I'm going to take 23 bags from the grocery store. I'm going to, uh, you know, stop talking to me about that. I give money over to, uh, you know, cancer research. How, how do yeah. you get them to care about this too? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question. And we, I, you know, as somebody who kind of was introduced into the sustainability movement through like animal rights, for instance, that was an excellent crash course in, in me finding kind of creative and, uh, respectful ways to message that we're complex human beings. We can care about a lot of different things at the same time because people would always be like, oh, why do you care about animals and circuses when there are children dying of, you know, malaria in another right. country? And I'm like, right. I care about both. I give a shit about both of those things and many other things. 
I think one way um, that I, I at least tried to tackle that in the book and just in my life generally is to show folks, like everybody has kind of their banner issues, like the things that they actually right. uh, hold up and say, I care about that. Like some people I talk to might be like, well, I care about feminism and women's rights, or I care about refugees and immigrants, or, you know, in the case of like my family, that's pretty con politically conservative, polar opposite from me. Uh, they really care about terrorism. So finding um, or economics and so finding the intersections of climate change or climate crisis, whatever, you know, uh, terminologies we're using now um, with those issues actually was something that made endeared like the whole movement even more to me. And I feel like made uh, made living more sustainably, more resonant for other people. So, for instance, in the book, I talk about how climate change there are strong linkages that show that the adverse impacts of like global warming actually uh, positively affect factions like ISIS and Boko Haram in recruiting people because climate change creates dire situations, especially for agrarian workers, folks who are used desperate. to farming. Right. 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 So, and we see that really strongly in Syria mm -hmm. with like the Syrian wheat farmers. Wheat used to be a huge crop in Syria. The climate has changed pretty dramatically there. Um, they're not able to practice their craft, essentially. They're not able to support themselves. So there's kind of this mass exodus to different cities. They don't have transferable skills. You know, you can't exactly like teach a wheat farmer to become a computer programmer in like a short period of time. It's not, it's not that kind of transferable skill set. And so people are, you know, so they're worried about supporting their families. They're starving. So if you see a well-fed guy who has like a machine gun and he says, if you join up with us, you know, we'll give your family protection. We'll make sure everybody's fed. It's that it's that climate of desperation. And that is catalyzed by a lot of uh, a lot of like uh, global warming issues. So right. that's something that when I explained that even to kind of my family and when I looked into the research myself, I was like, holy crap. I mean, rising sea levels make it very difficult for seafaring vessels like parts of our military to do their jobs so right. there are things that if people are really concerned about militaristic power or they're concerned about terrorism hey we have an intersection that involves climate change for you on that when it comes to women's rights and feminism and things like that you know there is sustainable fashion is as kelsey can speak to as well is one of it's you know fashion the fashion industry as a whole employs more women than almost any other industry but it's always at the lowest echelons of the employment like rung so you always have it's oh it's very rarely like the ceos and the people who are actually well paid it's almost always the garment workers who you know are making like shit money and don't have a bathroom break during the day so actually uh, embracing sustainable fashion is one of the best things you can do for uh you know for feminism and for promoting women's rights um, and then folks who talk about immigrant issues and uh, either, on either side of the aisle, uh, meat production, you know, the folks who work in especially our American slaughterhouses, by and large, that is an industry that runs off of paying people under the table. It, run, it benefits from having workers who have very little legal protections because it is one of the most dangerous jobs on the planet. And it is one of the most like incorrectly reported like incident rates to OSHA mm -hmm. so it behooves the like meatpacking industry and the animal processing industries to have folks who can easily go off the radar and nobody will miss them and that happens a lot 
So right. that is an that is like an immigration issue. That is an immigrants' rights issue. Yeah, and is, no matter. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that the, the it, it is this interrelated web. Um, of course, of course, all these things touch each other, right? And mm-hmm. um, and getting to the point where your daily decisions um, is not only how you vote and, and what you advocate for, but how your daily decisions can then affect affect for sure the sort of dominoes that uh, that occur in our environment and our cultures. Um, and nation states, right? And we, yeah, I think you're exactly right. It is, it is finding those things relevant, and and that's a place where our leaders need to also step up and say, look, these things all affect you. Maybe somewhere else, but it does affect you. I kind of came to right. all this like from the other end, right? Like I started with uh, the social aspects of it, and um, you know, it was really frustrating for me as I started to research the garment industry, where everything was about environmental friendliness like where they like mm-hmm. well we make our rubber and our shoes with re- responsibly sourced rubber well i've met the people who work in the in the factory themselves and so that's kind of at first i was really trying i was really struggling with people caring and this was like 10 years ago right caring so much about the environment when people were struggling so much and i've actually had a chance to talk to one of the most progressive uh, fashion brands that exist, uh, or pair of brands, I should say, that exist. And they told me that every decision they made about the environment saved them money, but any social um, decision that they made cost them money, which I found, which I found kind of fascinating. But I, you know, I've wow. come around to see that the, the issue that cuts across all of those social issues is the environment, right? Um, so I, I love that you're looking for those intersections of how these, because it was slow. I was kind of slow coming to that realization. That's all right. I think as long as you know, coming to the realization is the real triumph anyway. So you have a pretty conservative, uh, family or somewhat conservative family. You grew up in Texas. I'm going to read a couple sentences just so people get a flavor of, of your writing. Cause <laughs> I, I did not expect to like. Uh, giggle to myself as much as I did in this book. So I, I love your voice. So I grew up in Texas. This, this is you. I, I didn't. I grew up in Texas where everyone is basically breastfed beef. That was one sentence. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you talked about this graduation party at this restaurant where you proceeded to show as shove as many of God's creatures into my mouth as humanly possible. And then you just have a sentence that is date me. Which, yeah, which, date that, me. That made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I mean, laugh out loud too. Uh, so how did you come to this? You sound like you first was animals. How did you come to that realization? I mean, uh, it's, it certainly hasn't been like a monolithic path. It's been kind of interesting. So growing up, uh, my mom was a really big animal lover and we always adopted companion animals from shelters or you know rescued animals we like strays and things like that so that was kind of my first introduction into compassion for animals uh and but i was still you know eating (laughs) eating animals and i didn't even know anyone who was a vegetarian let alone a vegan when i was growing up um And then I had found a pamphlet at my local grocery store when I was around 11 years old and it was on the floor, uh, like kind of the personal care aisle. And I looked at it and and I believe it was a PETA pamphlet that was about animal testing or vivisection for, you know, beauty products. And I was horrified. I mean, this was before the internet and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So 
before cell phones. So that was a really eye-opening kind of gateway for me to see what the heck actually was happening. And it was something I never thought of before. So from that point on, I was very intent on finding products that weren't tested on animals, which at the time, this was in the early 90s, there wasn't a ton out there, um, especially where I lived. Um, so that was another animal issue that kind of came to came on my radar um, that I became really passionate about. And it actually wasn't until my late 20s, where I had earnestly pursued decided to pursue vegetarianism. So I would do all these things like, you know, I'm an animal lover, and I would go to fur protests and circus protests and things like that. Um, and was, you know, still working like a full time corporate job. I was a political strategist at the time. But I never had made the personal connection between like the animals that I, you know, like, hang out with as companion animals and the animals that I eat. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to an understanding of people's individual journeys. Because for me, it took me a long time to get to this place. And I my journey is always evolving. As I learn more things, um, I kind of change up not necessarily my value system, but how I approach things. So um, it wasn't really until I adopted my dog, almost 11 years ago, that I decided, oh, this would be a good time to pursue vegetarianism, just because I started seeing every animal in her, or I started seeing her in every animal. It was a really interesting kind of experience for me. So from then, uh, after going vegetarian with lots of fuck ups in between, I actually found like learned more about the dairy industry and stuff and found that veganism was probably more aligned with my personal values. So uh, went that route. And then from there, just uncovering kind of the myriad benefits and advantages to that lifestyle. So I was really into vegan fashion at the time and um, like learning about all of the different climate, allevi climate change alleviation from giving up meat and animal products. And so from there, it just kind of kind of was a slip, a good slippery slope for me. And um I had quit my job as a political strategist because I became so passionate about this stuff that I was personally pursuing and thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of gobsmacked by some of these discoveries. Maybe I should try to bring some of it onto, uh, you know, into like mainstream magazines, write about it. I didn't have any experience doing that, but thought it would be good. Started pitching different mainstream media outlets and started building up a portfolio writing about mostly vegan stuff, some sustainability stuff. And then I found actually people were more hungry for sustainability stuff. Mm. And so I kind of started framing it like that. And then I started doing television and like different TV segments on morning shows, thinking like TV is one of the best kind of mainstream captive audiences you can possibly tap into. And uh, there are folks who aren't as attuned to this. I wouldn't be preaching to the choir like I would be if yeah. I went to like a sustainability conference or a vegan conference or something like that. So that's really kind of how I cut my teeth in this, in this world or this land of sustainability. And then from there, the book seems like a natural extension. So, I mean, your, your book basically is a room by room guide at one point of how to make that room more sustainable in your house with like cleaning recipes for cleaning things and, and, um, and so what, what is the way the, the baby steps that you give someone who's just starting to think about these issues and to live a more sustainable life? Are there any 
critical ones that you focus on the most? Yeah, I mean, there are some that we just have even the data that we know uh, they make the most sense or they make the biggest impact. So the first thing I say is to, you know, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but is to, to lessen our consumption of animal products. That is, you know, when it gets to the point where the United Nations and pretty much every other like well-respected research body is recommending that, it's probably something we should look into. And it's easier than and healthier and more enjoyable than ever before to do that. So lessening our consumption of animal products uh, to lessening our reliance on single use disposables. I don't just single out plastic with that. I actually feel like everything kind of matters. So not just looking at recycling as the cure-all, but rather really doing the simple action of bringing a reusable cup, bringing a reusable bag, bringing reusable cutlery and being pretty vigilant and diligent about that. And then if you're in a position where, oh shit, you're at Starbucks, you want a cup of coffee, you can't stay in to drink it and like, uh, you know, a normal mug, what do you do? You know, then you just make the best decisions you possibly can in that situation, which might mean, sure, you need the cup for the coffee, but do you need the lid? Do you need the sleeve? Do you need that little stopper thing for the <laughs> for, for the lid do you need the caddy you know so kind of just chipping away at like do you need all those things so it's not that you know, everything is lost if you don't bring your reusable arsenal with you but rather that you think critically about what you can go without um when it comes to disposables um there are lots of other things folks can do i think one of the easier things if you're just looking for a micro step is to give up paper towels um, in favor of reusable cloths that you can wash with your regular laundry. I know that that's harder situationally for people who are, you know, running an animal shelter or who have lots of children at home. Um, but it's a switch that most folks have told me once they've made it, not only have they saved money, but they look at disposables in a completely different way, um, which I think is kind of eye-opening. Composting yeah. is also something that's really... I at least gaining momentum in more urban areas because there are all these like subscription compost serve pickup services that are out there that are great. But composting showed me how much food I was wasting. Um, when you throw it in the trash, you kind of just think like you don't think about it because it's in with everything. When you throw it in a small bin um, every week and then it gets collected, you really start to see how much you actually like go to waste in your fridge or in and, your. And food is a pretty large percentage of actually what's in landfills too, correct? It's a it is. It is. And it creates a problem when we have organic materials like food in with other things that hang out in the landfill, like a car bumper, for instance, it actually breaks down and produces even more methane. So it's better to like composting not only cuts down on that but also cuts down on the transportation resources needed to truck things out to the landfill so my trash i mean i still make trash i'm not like a pure zero waster who has a jar of trash or something um my trash has been cut i would say more than in half since composting yeah ashley what do you think about you know it's it we, my wife and I often feel proud that our trash bin is barely full every week, but our recycling is two full cans. So then you delve into that a little bit and you say, well, why are we using so many things that need to be recycled, right? So that's the next stage in that. But the recycling, the recycling, uh, you know, kind of save all we thought we were, you know, progressing down the past 20 years. Now you read a ton about you know, the, the uh, us sending it to other countries, those countries not wanting it, and the sort of 
the carbon footprint that even recycling the the, the processing that it takes to to uh, recycle is 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 heavy and burdensome and costs money and, and has environmental impact. I really feel like what what you're talking about in terms of minimizing what you're using, it is the consumption sickness that we have, I think, that really drives us into more and more and more stuff. So the answer may not be recycling. The answer might just be, why are you using things one time and why so many things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just, that's a beautiful synopsis of the whole book, Jay. I feel like. I feel like that's a like that's it in a nutshell. And there are a, there's a lot of research out there as to why we do consume things. Like I I talk about minimalism a lot in the book as actually being a cornerstone of more sustainable living. Not just because minimalism is really having a moment and it's very cachet, but because the fewer things you have to need, the fewer things you mm. need produced and that you buy, the fewer things that you spend cleaning, maintaining. And the fewer things you actually have to offload at the end of those things, kind of usefulness or lifespan. So uh, the Department of Labor does something really interesting every year. It's called the American Time Study, and it's around how we spend our time. And it's broken out by gender in different situations, like do you work, are you stay-at-home parent, things like that. And one of the most interesting things in there is that we spend a ton of time cleaning, so the less stuff you have, it's logical to assume the less time you're going to spend cleaning those things. Right. Um, but we also spend about 55 minutes a day just looking for things. Uh, <laughs> like just looking for things. And when I go to speak at conferences, people are always like blown away by that statistic. But that's everything from, you know, you're looking for your kid's hat or lunch pail. You're looking for your briefcase. You're looking for your keys. You're looking for a lipstick in like a crowded purse. Whatever it is, that's 55 minutes every single day. Stuff. We spend looking for things. It's buried in stuff. We've got lots of stuff. Yeah. We have lots of stuff. We have more personal storage units in the United States than all the Starbucks and McDonald's combined. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is... It's and most of the people who use those have basements and garages and attics mm-hmm. and huge homes. And so mm-hmm. it really is like an epidemic of stuff. And, you know, I mean, most financial advisors will say, don't get a storage unit because you will forget about all that shit in there. And yeah. over like a period of a year, you could be spending 5,000 bucks just yeah. keeping stuff and, that you don't need and, a lot. And, and if it's in there how for that full year, how much do you really need it? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a that's really true. And, there I'm, was one and I'm, that, on, I'm on video with Kelsey and I'm looking at all the junk. Oh my gosh. Me. I was looking around my, <laughs> like, my basement <laughs> office. I'm like, I'm glad that you can only see the ceiling. I actually I don't know, can you see me or not? I can see you. Did oh, you just change no. the did you just change the angle of your camera so that <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't see what was behind you? Don't look. It's all right, man. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. I'm not anti-stuff, so you're fine. One stat I saw in your book was like, uh, we have more than 300,000 things in our homes. Yeah. I think that's just my basement, maybe. Is this like a- 300,000 things. My son has that many toys, I think, in the basement right now, and it's- Yeah. yeah. Well, different life situations call for different things, so I'm not saying that Here's the, like, hopefully this is a huge takeaway from the book. And anytime I say anything, my sustainability doesn't have to look like your sustainability. The way I approach minimalism doesn't mean that we all need to be like live an aesthetic monk 
life where we only have like one fork and one shirt and a pillow. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to live in a spare space with very little stuff. It just means that you surround yourself with, you know, the stuff that brings you joy, the stuff that makes you money, the stuff that you actually, that has utility in your life. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, we're seeing an upsurge in that with all this Marie Kondo, like Netflix, life changing magic of tidying up stuff, um, which is good. But it also presents a problem too for like all of the these secondhand stores and donation centers now are being just overwhelmed with things that people are getting rid of. So it's back, Jay, to kind of your point of stemming the, the original impetus of just buying stuff in the first place is the most helpful place to start. So, so this awareness, has it, um, you know, do you, do you wish you were plugged back into the matrix? Is it, has it added joy <laughs> to your life? Has it like added frustration to your life? Like on a net level, I feel like it, how, how has it impacted your life? That's one of the best questions ever. I don't know if I've ever gotten it. And it's, it's really thought provoking and good. Um, I think personally, it's added an extreme amount of joy to my life, because I do feel like I am living in alignment with my values. And, um, and I do feel like I'm doing things to become part of the solution to a problem that's huge that needs as many solutionaries as possible. Um, and it's, you know, it's open doors to new experiences for me, like writing a book, which I consider a privilege and a gift, like doing TV, which I'm very grateful for. So being able to reach folks and talk about things that I'm passionate about is, is, has been a real joy in my life. I think, you know, it's again, like what we kind of opened up the podcast with talking about, you know, interacting with other people, which is going to make me sound like I'm socially maladjusted or I have no friends or something like that. That's not the case. but the constantly evaluating how you have these kinds of conversations with people or how you navigate life when you have these pretty strong personal convictions and those convictions are kind of different from the mainstream that is always a challenge it doesn't matter if you're you know freaking gluten-free or you're really into crossfit or you're a jehovah's witness or whatever it is if it's kind of considered fringy and different it's always going to posit some challenges um to interacting with folks in the mainstream so i just try to kind of keep it as like this is my personal journey it's joyful i'm proud of it and i like it um and if other people see that example and they're into it i am always happy to engage in like engage healthy curiosity and like respectful cool conversation ashley i gotta say I, the one exception in that i i i have trouble dealing with people that are into crossfit right <laughs> well uh <laughs> Our all, what about like, cryptocurrency? All, all of my friends, <laughs> including cryptocurrency. I don't want to talk about CrossFit. I'm like how that's just like equivalent, CrossFit and cryptocurrency. Or just maybe well, going the alphabet. That's the C's. But. There's kind of that new adage. It's not an old adage. New adage that's like, how do you know if someone's into these three things? They'll tell you. And yeah, one yeah. is CrossFit. One is veganism. And one is cryptocurrency. People will just, so, you know, I pretty much people know they'll tell you within the next five minutes and being a, you know, a longstanding vegan myself, I laugh at that kind of shit because it's true. I mean, my people, my people can be really annoying like that. (laughs) But I hear you. CrossFit's just insufferable. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that, that I think that people feel, and I felt this in my own life with different things, it's like, I'm, 
you know, I'm just one person. What difference can I make if I, you know, change the way that I, you know, heat my home or uh, what I drink out of? But, you know, you've actually have a master's in evidence-based social intervention and um, have some, like, some real stuff to back up that one person changing can actually, like, lead to, like, societal change. Could you share your thoughts on that? Kind of leave us with a charge of, like, that one person you know, or maybe they can't make a difference. I, I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, can you kind of leave us with that? Yeah. Um, so I had studied that a master's. I was a social worker in another lifetime and really wanted to know if the things that were kind of accepted as the gospel as social work interventions with people actually made a difference um, so that, you know, we could be doing the things that actually help people as opposed to setting them back. Um, there is data out there from different countries like Sweden and Germany that show that individual changes. So, for instance, people becoming people not ha not using single use plastics, people composting, people recycling appropriately, coupled with governmental changes, as in the government will ding you if you don't recycle appropriately or the government's going to come in and teach free classes on how to compost that those two hand in hand actually do make tangible differences in air quality, ozone quality, um, all sorts of stuff, soil regeneration. So there is data like that shows that individual things make a difference. Um, as far as the United States goes, you know, we didn't have this kind of accelerated climate warming um, until like, it's really mostly concentrated in the past like 40 years. And the intersection of that is the rise in industrialization, especially post-war industrialization, and our feelings that the American dream, you're not really living it unless you're having steak dinners every night, three cars in the garage, a huge home, fashion right off the rack. So all of these things that we consider to be kind of normal nowadays were very abnormal for someone like my grandmother, who's 108 now. These things were just not even like feasible at the time. And even for our parents growing up to a certain extent, like they didn't have this, they weren't awash with all of these disposable options, with all of these huge homes, these huge cars, that kind of stuff. So we created the demand that we're experiencing problems from now through our individual actions. That in and of itself tells me that our individual actions are extremely powerful because they roll up to a collective. So I'm not saying that, you know, in a vacuum, if you bring a reusable water bottle, that's going to save the planet. That's just ridiculous. Absolutely not. We need big scale changes on like a governmental level, on an industry regulation level, like those things also matter. But we're the ones who are demanding what gets made. We're creating the demand for certain cars, for certain clothes, for fashion right off the rack, for food, you know, that we can pick up and, you know, throw away the container on. We create that demand. So if you ever think that you're not personally powerful, um, that's just simply not true because we have all contributed to the crisis that we're sitting in right now through every single purchasing and consumption decision that we have made. So by that logic, every single future purchasing and consumption decision that we make can be part of uh, the solution. And more and more of us who adopt those changes can be part of the collective. And the collective is really the flywheel to things changing. Yeah, I just, I just heard, uh, have you heard of the book, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells? 
I have, and I'm afraid to read it because I'm already depressed. It know? is like the <laughs> the most. He's like the most depressing. Let's see. He's like look at the extreme things that possibly could happen from like diseases that are trapped in you know frozen ice in the Arctic yeah. that humans have never been exposed to ever. Right. Yeah. Like this is how the zombie apocalypse starts. I mean, that's kind of level that but he's, you know, it's all, you know, researched uh, at least he talks like it is. And I, I believe that it is. Um, but you know, one of the things that the most inspiring thing that he had to say, which is, I think goes with what you said, like we, we basically, the, the most amount of carbon, the, the lion's share of the carbon that we released into the environment is over the, the last generation or two. And it was us that did it. It's we us. have we yeah. have a generation or two, probably not two generations. We have a generation to kind of make a difference before, you know, the, the, our behavior lasts 1,500 years into the future. Uh, so as depressing as that is, like, but we caused it. So why can't we be part of the solution? I, that's, I really appreciate that book. You give us those very tangible ways of being part of that change. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I like with just a little piece of a little tidbit that I found really interesting. I was in Calgary last month and I was speaking at a conference for First Nation members, so indigenous communities in all of Canada. And it was about climate change and listening to like, for instance, these Inuit tribes that are very used to being in areas that are extremely cold talking about how they are being adversely impacted and pretty profoundly adversely impacted by climate change right now. I'm talking like, you know, ice sheets melting. They have no places to build homes. Hunting patterns have completely changed. Indigenous plants are changing. One of the most interesting and sad things that kind of came up from that conversation is that they have folks now who are dying of malaria oh because it's, their areas are becoming so warm that mosquitoes, which they have never dealt with before, and flies, which they have never really dealt with before, are coming into and invading the area. And the folks who are used to living there are not, you know, are not, are not used to experiencing mosquitoes at all. It's something completely different. So that was something to me where I was like, holy shit, we talk about, you know, we sit in, I'm from, I'm in Chicago. Where are you guys? Indiana. Indiana. Munch, okay. Munch so we, Indiana. Oh, that's right. Lazy Munsey. Uh, so we talk about, you know, like, oh, I don't feel any climate change impacts, but it's something that will be definitely affecting, you know, more vulnerable people, indigenous persons, persons in lower lying, more less economically prosperous countries. And they're experiencing it already by way of kind of what you were talking about from that other book, like, oh, my God, mosquitoes, like a plague of mosquitoes for people who've never experienced that in an area that should be Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. I was, that in, was a depressing way to end up. <laughs> well, well, I was in Colombia. I was in Colombia with a indigenous uh, group called the Arwaco and they said that the bees sound different. And I just never forgot that. Like, you know, how out of touch we are with the environment around us. We almost don't even see rivers anymore because we just cross them on bridges and they don't impact our lives. And they're like, the bees sound different. That kind of, kind of blew me away. Wow. Yeah, indigenous wisdom is, you know, an untapped resource, an untapped and under-respected and appreciated resource, for sure. So where else can people find, do you have the book, Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet? Where else can people find you uh, online? Uh, at my site, ashleypiper.com. My name has two E's and no Y. 
Um, and on Instagram, I'm pretty active on Instagram and my handle there is just Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-E, Piper, P-I-P-E-R. Okay. Well, we certainly have plenty of reasons to give a shit and we appreciate you giving us so many ways to do so. So Ashley Piper, you're good people. Thanks for coming on. Thank you guys. You're good. You guys are good people. We're, we're trying. It's a long, long process, long journey. You're doing. Jay's going to take on all the CrossFitters. Yeah, that's the next podcast. We're Keep ready. the planet prosperous from those CrossFitters. You know, I'm going to write a book that's basically the CrossFitters are fucking up the planet. <laughs> right. yeah, that would sell. Why, yeah, like well. linking somehow climate change to CrossFit. Oh my too, God. Much, too much chalk in the air. Yeah, all the farting yeah. of the CrossFitters. All the farting. All the paleo, all the meat consumption. That's what it is. Too. Well, that's I went to, it. this is way off topic, but uh, years ago I went to my first vegetarian Thanksgiving and that messed me up. I was really gassy after that. So I think <laughs> that the vegans might have something to say about all the farting that's happening as well. That sounds like a perfect close to the podcast. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah, you know how much I love to talk about farting. <laughs> yeah. It's my favorite. It's all my right. favorite. Well, you guys are awesome. On. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you so much. Um, so just for everybody's awareness, we just recorded an awesome commentary about Ashley's awesome commentary and I didn't press record. So here we are recycling our commentary. It's, it's a perfect fit. It is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe we just need less commentary. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. So, uh, Jay, what'd you think of Ashley? Oh, she's, she's great. She had so much energy. Uh, she was fun to listen to. Um, uh, she, she has so many great ideas and things that you can consume. I guess I could use that yeah, pun now. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I really like listening to her. And I can see why she's on TV and different media outlets, uh, you know, going through whatever it is, whatever um, issue she's talking about in consumerism. And um, uh, she's uh, she's entertaining to talk to. I think she's more fun than us. Yeah. I really I think, do. I think she is. You know, we yeah. ought to just one of us should be fired probably. Yeah. I'm jealous of her because she talks about, you know, really important things and, uh, in a very, very fun way. And, yeah. and I feel like sometimes my, my things I write about are like, people are like, Oh, that's yeah. it's heavy. heavy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think there's a place for that too, but she presents it in such a fun way and doesn't make people feel guilty and gives very tangible things that people can do, even if it's like, stop using paper right. towels. Right. right. She just does. She doesn't. Well, in the interview, she didn't take it to its dark conclusion, but in the, in the book she has, she gets into some of that longer term view stuff, which can be a little depressing, but it's, it's real. Right. Yeah. So she gives the information underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one thing that stood out to us was the, the fact that everyone should have their own kind of banner issue that they stand behind right and how how important that is and and um you know maybe ours or everyone has a different one and i think it's important not to shame other people for what theirs is even though like inside sometimes i'm like that's that's the thing that's the thing that you're going to take to the streets yeah for um but that diversity of caring of giving a shit yeah is really critical yeah well and if you honestly if you find passion for something you really want to see done it takes people covering all the angles because there's a there's a ton of need in the world for things to get better. So if you find an issue, 
turn the engine on and go, right? I mean, let's, uh, let's do it. But I, I have a tough time sometimes because some of my banner issues, I'm like, what? You should care about this. This is, this is a black and white thing. And maybe what uh, Ashley tells us a little bit more of is, you know, you should learn about those other things and you can do small things to impact them, even if you're not marching in parades or, yeah. you know. It is hard though, right? Because part of me is like, I've come to the place now where climate should be on the top for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it impacts every social issue. Yeah. If you care about puppy dogs, it impacts puppy dogs, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it impacts, it just cuts across the board. But like yeah. it is important to give people that space too. And it's an evolution too, or people right. start to care about one thing that leads to another. That's where I get, I, and I get impatient. It's like, okay, I, I get, people have told me before on a couple of the hot button issues for me, you're going to have to give that time. It's going to mm. take, no, I don't have time. I'm not yeah. going to give it time. And I always look back at, you know, it's pretty black and white now that we're looking at it in the rearview mirror, but you look at racism. Mm. I want everyone in 1950 to say, no, this is not going to keep going. It cannot continue. It has to stop right now. That's the way I want everybody to react. But they didn't. Yeah. It was small amounts of this, small amounts of that. Even even well-meaning people, it took a generation or two or three or still, 200 years uh, to get there. Who knows how long it's going to take. And, yeah. And, and to this day, we still... I still am impatient about it, mm-hmm. but, um, but you're right. There are some things you want to go. And I, I thought she does, does a really good job and heck we ought to give her all the issues to try to communicate because <laughs> yeah. she's so good at yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that stands out is just that, you know, she has these very tangible ways to make an impact, like, you know, use towels instead of paper towels. Right. 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 Of, which of, my daughter does. She's we're, she oh, comes really? here and she's like, why you need to throw away these paper towels and just buy five or six towels and wash them in the laundry. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I probably should do that. But I'm also a person that doesn't like kitchen stuff. They get like a sponge that gets old and gross. Paper towels, man, you clean them and they're per- yeah. and they go away and the next one's clean again. <laughs> I well, know. I always say when I go to, I hate, I, it's a little bit strong, but when I go to a nice restaurant or they have cloth napkins and I need to blow my nose. Yeah, how I do need you to do spit that? out my gum. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Now there's a whole other ethical conundrum right Right. do i blow my nose in this cloth napkin i spit my gum (laughs) that's the kind of things i struggle with i have never thought about that but you've never thought about that i've had that i get rid of my gum before i go in kelsey that's how you do it you plan just uncouth where do you you live outside of town somewhere don't you just do farmer style man (laughs) (laughs) but it is funny we're talking about this consumerism thing because as you know because you're going to help me with some of this after but we're having a rummage sale tomorrow do you know why we're having a rummage sale because we have too much stuff we have things that we've been saying, ah, we don't need this anymore, don't want this anymore, tired of this, got a new one of these. We stuck them in a corner in the basement. That corner has grown, and I've got to carry all this up and put this up in the garage so tomorrow when people show up at 7.45 that they will buy some of my things, right? Because we have too much stuff. And then they'll value them for a while, I hope right? so, yeah. But I can tell you, we still have too much stuff. But this happens a couple times of the year where we're like, oh. We just gotta we gotta have a yard sale get rid of some of the stuff. I mean that 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 that's that's really a sickness at some yeah. level. I know everybody does it, but so for my I don't know if we mentioned this interview or not, but the average American home has like three hundred thousand things in it. Oh wow. I, I do think I've read that, yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's yeah. just like... Oh, I, I'm looking around this room. I can believe it. And yeah. it just has to... It grows every year because certainly we're bringing stuff in faster than we're getting rid of oh, it. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. So there's a, a book called Overdressed by Elizabeth Klein, and she talks about fast fashion. It's an example of, of stuff that we bring into our lives. The average American buys 60 pieces of garment 
garments. Is that, I don't know if that's a proper way to talk about 60 it. 60 garments. 60 garments a year. Wow. And that seems like a lot to me. That seems like a lot. Yeah. But, you know, as I, as I, we talked about before, just recently when I didn't press record, <laughs> is that, but like, I'm a dude that has like underwear from literally from 2007 because I was staying at a hotel where they would do my laundry. They write my room number on the, on the inside of the underwear. And I still like have those, those underwear. So I'm not buying a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I I have to be honest with you. I was hoping when we redid this, that you wouldn't bring up the underwear again. <laughs> But you did. I, I thought it was There's nothing I can do about I it. I like now. to really bring it down to a level. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes when we're talking up here. And you just need to go straight. And we just need to straight go straight to the undies. Potty humor. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I, I, I've done it. I, I get ready for work and I'm like, ugh, I'm so tired of my clothes. I get tired of wearing the same thing. I have to dress up just a little bit, but I just get tired of it. And I'm like, I need to buy some new shirts. Mm-hmm. Because I get tired of wearing the same thing. Yep. They don't have holes in them. But I just... I just yeah. want something new. And I don't even, and I'm not even a, anybody has a taste in fashion or has any really nice clothes, but everyone's, I'm like, ugh, tired of those shirts. Yeah. I guess one of the things I love about traveling too is that I go travel for weeks or months at a time and I have like four shirts. Yeah. There's not a lot of you decision survive. making. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wash them in the sink and. But you know what would happen today? Let's say a modern office or somewhere where you're not in a uniform or something, right? Where you wear the same thing every day. Um, if you wear the same five shirts every week, which is completely plausible, let's not talk about underwear. I know okay. that's where you're going, but the same five shirts every day for a work week, people would look at you and do you know, Kelsey wears the same five shirts every week. Yeah. yeah. They would, they could be nice shirts, but they would talk about it and say, why does he wear the same five shirts? Yeah. Isn't that strange? There's so much cultural pressure to consume. Yeah. Right. Right. From yeah. the ads that we watch on TV to yeah. what our friends yeah. just bought. Or... And if I get a cool new shirt, somebody will say, oh, I like your shirt. Yeah. I should get more new shirts because it adds some credence to my personality <laughs> or something. Right. Uh, I and mean, that's what we think. Yeah. But if you wore the same five shirts in an office environment, I guarantee you people would start to talk about it. Yeah. What's his deal? Except if you're, if you're Steve Jobs, right? Like you kind of have a uniform. Maybe he just had one shirt. Though. Well, he's also Steve Jobs. But, yeah. Yeah. So to get this on this theme of consumption, I got some stats here. I wrote about this okay. a little bit in um, my second book, Where Am I Eating? And um, so the ecological footprint of an average American is 23.6 acres. That means to provide us with the things in our lives, to grow it, to produce it, equals 23.6 acres of land. And if all 7 billion earthlings consumed like Americans did, we would need five planets. So That's I think, a lot of space. I think it's just evident we have to consume less. Our lifestyles have to change. And I'm saying that completely realizing that I'm living in this, yeah. uh, contributing to this. Yeah, we both are. You know, the average American consumes amount of resources of 32 Kenyans. Yeah. You know, it's just like we're consuming. And, and, like and, peop- said, and, and well, and everybody looks at the United States. They've got money and uh, comfort and all those things that countries look up to. And we talked about it in uh, – I think it was, uh, oh, it was in the last episode or the episode before, um, about, um, um, people looking up to us for hope. Yeah. Right. There's hope for us as a, as a nation. That's what other, some other countries might say. That's, is that what they're shooting for? Mm. Cause do they need 300,000 things in their, in their house? Because yeah. that's kind of what we've accomplished. I don't know if that's an accomplishment, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, so I really appreciate Ashley's conversation, uh, getting us thinking about these things and examining them. On starting with a very like 
you can do these things, but that leads to these deeper questions of right. should we even be buying these things yeah. in the first place. Yeah. And what was the name of her book again? Ashley's book is Give a Shit. Do good, live better, save the planet. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchieyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash people to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.